0: Check out JoinColossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied
1: upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today we'll be breaking down Pinduoduo. Founded in 2015, Pinduoduo used a team-buying social network concept to build what is now China's largest e-commerce platform measured by annual active users. In this breakdown, we'll explore Pinduoduo's value proposition to a niche but incredibly large merchant segment and its role in the daily lives of hundreds of millions of consumers. We'll cover what made Pinduoduo attractive to buyers and how the team buying concept creates scaled demand. We'll touch on their fascinating network dynamics, from the creation of trust ecosystems to the role of gamification in WeChat, to the sheer scale of the digital and physical logistics required to create what Pinduoduo has made possible. For this episode, I'm joined by Xin Yi Lim, the company's Senior Director for Corporate Development. Shin Yi's experience as a financial analyst covering the sector prior to joining the company makes her perspective particularly valuable. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Pinduoduo. <laughs> This is going to be fun. I've really been looking forward to this chat and just thinking about where to start. Let's start at the beginning. So 800 million users surpassing Alibaba is China's top e-commerce destination. And this growth is truly stratospheric. Can you walk us through the movie trailer of the company? How did it start? What is it? And frankly, how did we get here?
2: I have to confess that when I first heard of Pinduoduo, I was also really floored by the growth that it achieved in a short period of time. So in my past life, I was actually an investment analyst covering the internet and media sector based out of New York. And I thought I had seen it all with Alibaba and JD. So when Pinduoduo came along, I think it really surprised a lot of people in the industry. So if I had to condense it, I think I would say that Pindoduo benefited from being at the right place at the right time and doing the right thing, having the right idea that really managed to take root and grow very quickly. So what I mean by that is if you rewind the clock and go back to China back in 2015, this was when we just had the battle of the red packets. So a lot of people had a little bit of cash sitting in their WeChat pay, in their Alipay, and they were looking for places to spend it. At the same time, on the physical infrastructure side, you know, there was also a lot of preceding investment that had happened uh, with regards to logistics, right, delivery. So now consumers were actually getting an improving e-commerce experience, right? From, you know, bulky items to smaller, lower value items. A lot of these things were being transported by the growing third-party logistics system. And the costs were also coming down as they drove more efficiencies. So then this means that, okay, some of the categories that previously were not really distributed or sold online, like fresh produce, could potentially be something that could be done right in 2015 versus say prior to that and I think a final piece as well is in terms of that social connectivity so everybody in China has WeChat right to function in the country you need to have WeChat it's the glue (laughs) so if you think about how people interact how they share with each other everybody has WeChat even if you're in a lower tier city you definitely have like a hundred buddies on WeChat or something like that and so it is a common network where people can exchange information and share potential shopping deals. So this was something that is, it's like a city that has just been built and it's just missing a shopping mall. And so this is when sort of Pinduoduo came along, right? So we realized that actually when e-commerce startup coming into being or into existence at this time, you've got the logistics, you've got the payments all figured out, and you've got a way for people to communicate and potentially help market your products. So when we first started, we didn't even have an app. So it was just going through WeChat and it was just focused on fresh produce. Our predecessor was Pinduoduo. That was the very first platform that we started that was oriented around fresh produce. It was a first party platform where we actually took inventory of the fresh produce, but we managed to scale very rapidly in this single category because we recognize that it's a category that is universal. Whether you're somebody who's very wealthy and living in Beijing or you're somebody who's from a lower tier city, you consume pretty much the same kind of fruits. It's a very common thing. It has a very high repeat purchase frequency in terms of the average order value. It's relatively low. So if I want to convince you like, hey, Claire, you know, you don't know me, but give me 20 RMB just to buy some apples. The worst thing that could happen to you is you pay 20 RMB and the apples didn't show up, right? or the apples showed up and they were bad. But it was just 20 RMB. So in terms of the hurdle of acquiring customers, it was a bit easier to sell that versus trying to jump headfirst into electronics or something that's really high dollar value and requires a high amount of brand recognition. So having got the flywheel going in the agricultural sector, that's when, you know, as we snowballed and accumulated more and more users who were sharing about pin hao and then eventually pin duo duo with their friends, the order volume really spun up. And then our users went from 100 million to 200 million, etc. And today we're at 788 million. So close to 800 million in the span of less than six years. So I think a lot of that comes from our recognition of trying to grow in e-commerce in 2015. It doesn't mean that you just try and do it like the way that other people have done it, right? I think trying to replicate exactly what other giants have done before
1: would have been unwise. So I want to dig in a bit on just what it even feels like to be a user. And so this concept of social shopping, which can be hard to understand elsewhere, it, it seems like the company has really taken you know, shopping, we're going back to bazaars or malls in the 1980s, this very inherently social experience, and made it really gamified and part of what you now have on your phone. Can you maybe walk us through if I was going to order apples or oranges or pens or sneakers, what that is, sort of what is happening, what is the process? Yeah, sure.
2: So I think you you touched on a really good point there, right? Which is the nuance that for us, what social commerce really is, is the element of doing things together with your network. Because oftentimes, I think when we look at the media, we see that term being bandied around, and then you realize like, oh, it's just referring to People selling things via Facebook or Instagram, right, or having a mini uh, shop on on WeChat, but that is still actually just talking about kind of the distribution layer, right, which is just saying that okay, instead of seeing a listing on Amazon, you saw a listing on Facebook or. Instagram, and then you click through and you made the purchase there. So it was hosted on a social network, but there was nothing inherently social about it. So whatever you see on your Instagram feed could be very different from what I see on my Instagram feed. We might actually have fairly similar tastes, but that information is never actually acted upon. So this is where it's very different at PDD. So say, for instance, you're looking to buy some fruit for your family, your fairly healthy eater, and we know from your browsing behavior, your shopping behavior on the platform that you regularly shop with me. I'm your best buddy, and I'm also into buying food for my family. And so we can see that actually when it comes to fresh produce, you have a strong pattern of buying things that I recommend or things that I have bought or things that I invite you to buy together with me. So if I take a step back, you look at a listing on the platform, say for a box of apples, there's usually two prices. There's going to be the standalone price. So maybe for this example, say it's 30 RMB. And then there's a team purchase price. So again, determined by the merchant. So maybe the merchant prices it at say 24 RMB. And so to unlock the team purchase price, to buy something at a team purchase price, what you as a user need to do is to just get one more person to join you in forming a team purchase. We let the merchant set what is the minimum team size. And over the years, as we've grown larger, that hurdle has come down quite significantly. So you can imagine in the earlier days, you know, when we're bootstrapping, when we're trying to get larger, get more order volumes, the merchants might say, okay, if you can form a team of 20, I'll let you have it at like the wholesale price or like a really good price. And then gradually as we accumulated so many more users, it's much easier to accumulate say 10 teams of two than one team of 20. So then they kind of said, okay, you know, just need a minimum of like two people and you can have the team purchase price. So that makes it very simple for for the user, because you don't have to do any like complex math, like oh, I need if two more guys come, I get this price or whatever. It's just whether you get the single purchase price or the team purchase price, right? And everybody wants to pay less, so you always try to form a team. So you can be the first person who forms a team. So maybe say, I am trying to buy apples, so I've initiated a team purchase and I have 24 hours. that team purchase to close so during that period i would get nudges i get a prompt right away after placing the order to say hey share this team purchase with your friends so i can choose the social network of my choice whether it's qq or wechat and then I can just send it out to the friends whom I think would be interested. So maybe I send it to Claire, I send it to my mom, send it to my sister or whoever. People who I know probably would be interested in this kind of thing. Maybe not to my boss or whoever, but I have 24 hours. So once somebody from my team joins in, then we both get to enjoy the apples At that 24 RMB price. And the apples are shipped separately. So Claire gets a box to her home, and maybe I get a box, and I set the address to my office. In terms of the savings, it's not so much in terms of instead of two deliveries, it becomes one delivery. It's more the merchant, especially for fresh produce, they now have so much more visibility. They can see that, oh, I have two orders instead of just one order here. And then eight hours later, maybe I have another separate order. Like it's all very dispersed. Now, if Effectively, what I'm doing for the platform is I'm helping to pull in traffic. I'm helping to get somebody else to buy Apple's from that same merchant so if I didn't send an invitation to Claire maybe Claire would have gone to buy bananas from a different merchant or maybe you would have bought apples but you would have bought it from somebody else next week so it would have been dispersed so what I'm doing now is I'm pulling everything together in a concentrated window of time and now the merchant also has a lot more visibility that like okay you know I've got five orders five teams in formation that's going to work out to roughly about 10 boxes in the next 24 hours that I need to pack so they can actually start packing, start planning some of that. When you think about manufactured goods, that potentially has ramifications for the manufacturer in terms of economies of scale. Because now we can see, I have a lot of orders or a lot of volume aggregated for a particular product. Maybe I'll just make more of this, and I can go bargain upstream, get better prices for my inputs, etc. And maybe I can optimize my manufacturing, cut down the line for something that's just not moving enough volume, and really focus on this one product. And in so doing, you know, as you drive more economies of scale, the price may be even better over time. So that then creates even more demand. So that's kind of a virtuous cycle that we have going.
1: So you talk about what are really almost two flywheels running at the same Mm -hmm. time, like the users themselves are a flywheel for customer acquisition. And then on the other side, just that feedback loop of the user behavior. It's almost like this integrated improvement cycle to make the supply chain More efficient.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we've always talked about this idea of consumer to manufacturer. So C2M. A lot of what enables C2M is that volume. When you get to a certain scale, and then you can start feeding some of those insights to the manufacturer that, like, hey, you know, a lot of people really want this kind of thing in this SKU. And the manufacturer can really then focus their resources on producing things that fit that need, and then it can be an even better price. And I think for the consumers, it's also tapping into, I think what you mentioned earlier on as well, right? There is an offline shopping element of socializing, interacting with your friends, getting the inputs that often gets lost in online shopping, becomes very singular, very efficiency-driven. But sometimes you do welcome insights or inputs from your friends. So this is where you can potentially have a ripple on effect, if i bought something from a particular merchant and i think it's super awesome i might write a really good review for it and that information can also influence my friend's own shopping journey so they can see for instance when they are browsing we might push that product or things from that store in the recommendation feed so then they would see like oh this is a store that your friend has given a five-star review from or we can show you like this is the review that your friend has written so that could be extra relevant to you because you're like oh okay yeah i I trust Clara. She's got good taste. So if she had a five-star experience at the store, I'm even more inclined to like tap and check it out. So then the feed becomes smarter and smarter over time because then we figure out like, okay, these are the things that you value. These are the things that will influence you. We can actually help some of the smaller merchants get more visibility as well. Because now it's a recommendation feed. It's not top-down driven, search optimized. Like I just put the most money, I own the keywords and I get all the traffic. This is actually a lot more decentralized or like less top heavy because it can take into account that like, okay, you know, for this particular category of stuff, maybe Claire is more budget conscious. So I should show her the merchants or the products that would really rank quite highly in terms of like value for money. But then maybe for other types of things, maybe if it's things for eating or things for kids, you might actually emphasize organic or in terms of the standards, it may be higher. So in those cases, we would then know to surface a different set of products or merchants to
1: you. Can you talk a bit about just the gamification element there? Thindledo has been described before as a mix of Costco and Disneyland.
2: What does that mean? Sure. So I think a lot of people get the Costco piece. Stuff is cheap. So that's the Costco piece. But what is the Disneyland component? So I think that really boils down to that sense of just entertainment or fun and enjoyment as you're browsing on the app. So we don't want the app to just be something that you only fire up when you have a fixed thing that you want to buy, right? Like, okay, need more. toilet paper. Okay. Open up the app. It it might just be something that you turn to when you have some idle time, you're waiting for the bus. You've got a little bit of time to kill and we can offer you different experiences. There are games on the platform that you can play that is also very tightly woven with the shopping experience. So there's Tuotuo Orchard, for instance, which is a game that we've had for several years now. And basically what I describe it as to marketing people is that it is just a loyalty card, except that it's made into a game. It's flexible it's adaptable but basically what you're doing is you are rewarding people for engaging with your platform so you can get water droplets virtual water droplets for browsing product listings for making purchases from certain stores, etc., for you know performing certain actions. You can steal water droplets from your friends' orchards. Right? <laughs> and the end goal is that you just want to water the tree enough time such that it bears fruit. And once it bears fruit, you actually get a box of real fruit. And we source the fruits from farmers who are living below the poverty line. So a lot of them, they may be already farming, trying to make a living, but not really succeeding in terms of getting the order volumes or the visibility. So what we do is that actually a lot of people play this game. So, you know, if I have like hundreds and millions of DAUs, how do I then get that traffic going to actually benefit some of these poorer farmers? So we source the fruits from these farmers. So depending on the season, you might get mangoes, you might get apples. I've gotten a packet of dates before. So yeah, it really depends. We have other games that are also weaving in sort of shopping elements, but also you can just play it just for fun. So we've got something that is kind of like a candy crush. And more importantly, I think it's just that browsing. I've seen people describe it before as it's a way to release some of the mental burden after like a heavy day's work. Mm. You sometimes just want to like kick back. It's the equivalent <laughs> of Netflix and chill, except now you're just swiping and browsing and discovering things that could be useful to you. And really how we try to improve that likelihood of you seeing something that is like, hey, that's cool. Or like, oh, I didn't know there's a gadget that does this kind of stuff. Is that information as you tap into certain things, we learn like, okay, you know, Cine is really into cleaning hacks. Anything that can make cleaning easier, she's into it. So then maybe I get a lot of those things. And then when I start buying those things or indicating interest in those things, and people in my circle interact with that, then that forms another layer. So this proprietary social graph is basically a way in which we then figure out like okay where do people really connect or where are they most like each other and sometimes it's really fun it's that human element that you do have in the offline world so i think that's the disney experience that we're trying to bring to people that shopping doesn't have to be solitary shopping doesn't have to be very dull it can be a way in which you actually do it with friends you bond with friends you learn from their experiences And you
1: both find things that you otherwise may not have found. It's like Farmville, but not annoying and maybe more philanthropic. And then the voyeurism (laughs) of Venmo. And then maybe like the predictive great experience when Netflix shows you something, you're like, oh, I really do want to binge that. Thank you, Netflix.
2: At the end of the day, it's up to you. So if you're not comfortable sharing your purchases, you don't have to just change the settings, the power is always in the user's hands. So I think what we're also seeing as people interact with the platform is we can see, I guess, different archetypes of users. So some people maybe like power sharers or power influencers when they share something with people it really has an outsized effect then we know that, hey, actually, this is useful information, right? Because for the merchants who advertise on the platform, if you manage to advertise or reach one of these power influencers, you know that your marketing dollar is going further because these people, when they share it or when they recommend it to your friends, a lot of them may convert. So that's actually, I think, something that as you get more users, as you learn about their behavior, we're constantly being surprised or constantly learning about how actually people
1: are interacting. So... You hit a bit on the revenue model there. Can you shine some light on how the business all fits together between advertising revenue, platform fees, and other segments? I think it'd be helpful to understand that mix and how that shifted over the life of the company.
2: Sure. So I think PintoDoor has a fairly straightforward business model where the focus is really on advertising-driven revenues. So the majority of our revenues come from advertising. And basically, the merchants on our platform, when they set up on the platform, they have the direct choice. They would just be paying a platform fee, which is a very low standard transaction service fee of 0.6%. That's the standard rec rate. And it's primarily to cover the payment processing fees and any other services that we provide. And on top of that, if they want to advertise, they can actually choose from a selection of different advertising tools. We've got live streaming ads, we've got in-feed ads, we've got search ads. So it's up to the merchant what works best for their product and they can pick and choose. The business model, we believe, actually aligns our interests together with the merchants quite well, because to the extent that, the merchants are seeing a lot of traffic coming onto the platform, a lot of conversion, a lot of sales, they naturally would want to increase their investment spending on our platform, which comes through advertising. So over time, the merchants who can deliver better services, the better performing merchants they will naturally grow together with the platform as they see the value of our platform. And then at the same time, because the standard payment processing fee, transaction service fees, those are very low. It's only 0.6%. So it's a very low hurdle so for new merchants who want to come onto our platform it also is a low barrier to entry so they can just give it a go right and then as they grow as they become more confident they can choose however much of the advertising tools that they want to tap into and i think you know over the last few quarters we continue to see very healthy take up of the advertising tools on our platform right so increasingly more and more merchants are experimenting with different kinds of advertising products on the platform and those that are advertising are also increasing the amount that they're advertising so all in all majority of our revenues coming in from the advertising side of things transaction service fee revenues that is more tightly correlated with just the scale of the platform so our gmv And then we now also have a small piece of the business that is first-party sales, but that we view as a primarily stopgap measure. It's just to provide our consumers with popular products that are not able to be fulfilled by the party merchants at the moment. So the first-party sales, I would say, is a relatively new initiative, and we don't expect that to be a very permanent feature on our platform. So really, the focus would still be on the advertising revenues. So that's how the business model works. And then we recently also just started a new initiative called Dodua Grocery, which we can talk a bit about later. And so for this business, the revenue model is also to charge a transaction service fee.
1: Okay, so later can be now. How, how does that work? How does Dodo Grocery fit in and differ
2: yeah, sure. So for Total Grocery, we started in August last year really as a response to what we saw happening post COVID or because of COVID. So historically the online penetration rate for agricultural produce has been relatively low. So if you think about electronics, apparel, these things are easily 30% online penetration rate. But then when you look at something like say agricultural products, that penetration rates only in the mid single digits, we think. So that's something that people are still predominantly buying offline, right? And then of course when covid hit, a lot of people had no choice, right? The markets were closed, you couldn't go out of the house. So some Suddenly, everybody was forced to try and buy agricultural goods online for the first time for a lot of people. And what we saw to our surprise as well was that even after the lockdowns lifted, a lot of those habits stuck with people. They realized like, hey, this is pretty convenient or or the things that I'm getting are actually pretty good. The prices are good. Like, why didn't I do this earlier? Then actually a lot more demand started to take place online. And then as we went into the summer months, we realized kind of hitting the limits of what the third-party logistics can handle in terms of perishable goods. So it's summer in China, it's hot, and you've got leafy greens wilting in cardboard boxes. It's not the prettiest site. Customer complaints are going up. And so we decided like, okay, we probably need a dedicated grocery offering to really address the needs for these kinds of products. So dodo Grocery is a more localized system whereby we're focusing on trying to match more local supply with local demand. So we've rolled it out to 300 cities so far. So how I would contrast it versus the main Pinduoduo app is that on Pinduoduo itself, you could be anywhere in China and you could see items or fruit that maybe it's not native to your part of the country. I could be in the North and I could be ordering some passion fruit from the South that maybe isn't carried in my local supermarket, right? Because there just isn't the not that much demand for that product or whatever it may be. And so for things where it's not available locally, or it's something where maybe say it's a higher ticket price item and I'm really kind of more price sensitive, I want to do a lot of comparisons. I want to make sure I'm getting the best possible product. You don't mind waiting a couple of days for the delivery, then maybe I'll fulfill that through the main pinball app. Now for grocery, the Chinese people tend to prefer buying things fresh on a daily basis right so they'll go to the market and buy something that they're going to cook later that evening now for these kinds of products especially for leafy greens which are lower ticket price but also you know relatively more perishable we need a solution whereby you could actually have a quick turnaround time so Dodo grocery is an extension. It sits on our app. You don't have to download anything else. You just open up the PDD app and you'll see Dodo Grocery if it's available in your city. And you just tap in and you can place an order for whatever products that you need. It's a relatively more curated lists so some of the things like the passion fruit you may not find it but we have other things that are also at very compelling prices so then you would just place an order on the app before 11 p.m today and then you can pick it up after 4 p.m tomorrow so you go to a nearby grocery store or cigarette store laundromat hair salon usually the pickup points are fairly So it could be like a hundred meter walk from your apartment, 200 meter walk from your apartment, and you can fulfill that last mile yourself. But what this does is that it means, you know, we have to produce getting shipped out or being transported from the supplier to the fulfillment center in a matter of hours. And then after that, we then send it on to the distribution points. And then because there's enough density of orders, each distribution point could be fulfilling several tens or even like hundreds of orders. And the local residents just go and fulfill the last mile themselves. So that unlocks some savings in terms of logistics costs, because typically the last mile costs about a third of the total logistics costs. So now you're carving out a third and you're sharing the gains, right? So the consumers can pay a lower price than what they might find elsewhere. And we are also able to invest and help build out in that logistics infrastructure. And what we're doing there is working with third-party asset owners to try and optimize the management of the logistics. Given all the order volumes that we're seeing, is there a way we can be smarter about how we line up the trucks, about when we tell the lettuce guy to come and then when do we tell the cabbage guy to come etc so these are things that we're learning as we build out the service but what we're trying to do here is basically offer the consumer more choice now when they're buying something like say tomatoes they can decide like okay what kind of tomatoes do I want and is it urgent do I want it the next day in which case I'll go through Dodo grocery or maybe I want some exotic tomatoes or whatever and I'm willing to wait a couple of days for it to come and I don't mind paying maybe a higher price for that. So the consumer now has a lot more options and they can decide based on their particular need how they want the product to be fulfilled.
1: What you just hit on there within the logistics network and this web when Pundodo is growing so quickly, where there's the Amazon model where Amazon has their own warehouse space. They also take third party space. They manage some of their own deliveries, but they also plug into an existing network contrasted with Kupong, who just fully integrated from the start. How do you, while growing so quickly, manage those sorts of decisions across such a huge map, such a huge variance in the tiers of markets that Pendledua is serving?
2: Yeah, so I think for us, really, it's always revolving around the consumer needs. I think if you look at Duoduo Grocery, for instance, the way that we run it is also relatively decentralized. If I am a manager somewhere in the Northeast, I might know that the consumers in this part of China really need some particular types of products. They have particular shopping behaviors. So then I have the power to decide we need to get merchants, we need to source certain kinds of products to make sure that we can fulfill these consumer needs. I I have the autonomy to do that. And my colleague somewhere in the south, for instance, can similarly tailor the offerings to what the consumer in the southern part of China may need. And that may then transpire, I think, in terms of not just the product itself, but also how you want it to be fulfilled. Do you need more truck runs or, you know, is it just because the the layout or where the suppliers are necessitates a different kind of organizing of the logistics arrangement? There's definitely a lot of emphasis or room for tailoring operations to meet the needs of the local consumer Like the best. I think when we compare to say other more established e-commerce peers, whether it's Alibaba, JD or Amazon, when they started out in e-commerce, it was a very different time. Definitely in terms of just logistics, for instance, there were a lot of things that they had to invest in. To build out because it just wasn't there for us when we came into the picture there were a lot of things that were already ready built and maybe still with excess capacity that we could utilize better and do so at a low marginal cost where it makes sense to just tap on these existing capacity we would just do that as opposed to trying to invest or own or build everything ourselves because if you work with third parties We can integrate with them but at the end of the day you know as long as you have the systems to ensure that you're also getting the customer feedback are they satisfied with what you're offering to them and if not then okay maybe that's a signal that we need to change To a different logistics partner because there's complaints about slippages. So it's just you would maybe architect a different system versus say if you build everything end to end, that is definitely, I think, more asset-heavy approach. Does have, I guess, some pros because you would do everything your way. What we have seen in China as we came in was for I think general purpose logistics there's a lot of things that's ready to go that actually the existing infrastructure players are already doing a very good job of and then what we're identifying right now around say like cold chain for instance is like okay sometimes there really just is a capacity issue or maybe there are assets but they're not being utilized in the best way so how do we come up with a system that can actually improve the utilization reduce downtime and shorten the overall shipping time so that's one thing that we've been looking at. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it absolutely does.
1: Pinduoduo has been a story. It's so uniquely Chinese and it's developed so much with the country. You know, only 4% of China's existing logistics infrastructure was institutional just two or three years ago. And so that network has been expanding just as the country is urbanizing. It's only as urbanized as the US was in nineteen forty nine. And so just to make all of these things possible and to negotiate it from a physical standpoint and digital is fascinating. And to that point we were saying earlier about traveling into the future, it's dealing with this very future state, but then also some of these emerging markets changes. It's it's really quite unique there. I want to punch in with you a little bit on this concept around the map overall. And so when you started, you were talking a bit about the, the tier two or tier three cities versus maybe a tier one. And, and in 2019, what was it, 40, 44, 45% of the users were for the first time maybe coming from first tier cities? In China, can you talk a bit about what's happening there, this transition from secondary cities to primary and where your users are coming from?
2: So we've actually shared before that in terms of our user base, the split in terms of which tier cities they're from pretty much mirrors the population distribution in China. So there isn't really a particular skew towards lower tier cities more so than they are represented in the population. So I think a common misperception that people have, which is that, okay, you know, PDD mainly targets folks in the lower tier cities. But what we've seen is that actually a lot of people in the first, second tier cities Our PDD users, right? Maybe they're just not very vocal or very open about them using PDD, but we can see it in the numbers. Actually, at our current scale of 788 million shoppers, it is almost touching the whole e-commerce user base in China. So I think actually in terms of that population distribution, it really isn't too different from what you would see from say like Alibaba. JD does still have a bit of a predominantly more first, second tier city skew. But I think for us, it's much more representative of just like the population distribution. And I think one thing that we have seen as well is that Some of those distinctions between first-tier city shopper or lower-tier city shopper, it kind of blurs when you just focus on the shopping behavior. Because increasingly, we see that people in the lower-tier cities, they're also pursuing imported goods. They also want to buy higher quality goods, and they do have disposable income to make those purchases. And then at the same time, for folks in the first-tier cities, with the very steep rents that they're paying in Shanghai and Beijing, everybody's trying to find a way to save as well. And of Obviously, if you go to an offline retail store, they've got overheads to cover. So if the rent's a certain price, things aren't just going to be cheap. So if you can find a more value for money alternative online, why wouldn't you do it? Increasingly, at least from operations, we don't really distinguish so much between where the user geographically is, because at the end of the day, we're trying to solve different user needs. If we just see that, like, okay, there's a pickup of people looking for imported infant formula for instance the main kpi or goal of our operations guy focusing on imported goods specifically maternity care is like okay how do i improve the sourcing how do i make sure that we have more merchants coming onto the platform who carry this particular brand or this particular product and what is the bottleneck why don't we have more supplies is it just lack of supply in the country or is it just that these people don't know enough about door and so then we try to solve the problem that way at the end of the day if it's somebody from the lower tier city or first 2nd secondary city, buying that in formula doesn't really matter to us, right? What matters is that there was this amount of demand, that there was this amount of user need, and were we able to satisfy it? What
1: about non-food, non-agriculture, non-baby formula? Can I buy an iPhone on Pinduodua? How does all that work?
2: Yeah, sure. So we are all-category e-commerce platform. We've shared before that about half of our GMV comes from apparel and household goods. Agricultural products, we separately disclosed. It was about 16% of our GMV in 2020. And so the remainder, you know, it'll be all kinds of stuff. There's electronics, and there would be the iPhone that you mentioned, down to air conditioners, heaters, all kinds of stuff, furniture, books, Toys, a lot of different kind of product categories. So I think from a user experience perspective, and kind of want to go back to one of your earlier questions, right, about the value proposition. I think for users, our focus is very much to ensure that you know whatever it is that they would be interested in, they can find it on PDD. It doesn't mean that I need to have as many listings as some of my peers do, because at the end of the day, you're not gonna when you're searching for a pair of jeans. You're not going to look at like 200 listings, just where you're going to browse, like maybe the first five or 10 that's the most relevant to you. You make a decision and you move on. For us, it's about having that right breadth and depth of different types of products based on different characteristics and ensuring that, okay, our algorithm is smart enough. Our recommendation engine is able to pick up on the things that people would probably be looking for in this category and then surface it to that user. So that's really um, kind of the value proposition of consumers, right? You can things and things that are value for money compared to say other platforms. Now, from the merchant perspective, I think it's also very valuable, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, there are some merchants who maybe are not that big. They don't have that much money to spend on bidding for keywords or whatever it is, but they may have some really good products. So how do they find a consumer-based effect? at a lower price. And so because our system is actually more recommendation driven, it does mean that not all the traffic for jeans is going to go to one guy, right? There's actually going to be a lot more different segmented audiences, right? Where it could be people looking for mom jeans that are a certain price point and have a certain look. And it could be people looking for branded household name, kind of like Levi's or whatever, um, skinny jeans, and focusing on a different kind of market. So it's something that I think gives a lot of these smaller mid-sized merchants a chance to compete and showcase their product and one thing we're working with them closely on as well is how do we help them build up their brands as we work with them with consumer preferences on like okay you know for this kind of product a lot of people want this kind of stuff and if you can make it and sell it at a certain price that would be great And it's kind of down to the producer how do they execute on that and then if they are able to come up with certain hit products then maybe that can be the cornerstone for their brand we Seen that happened with some of the local manufacturers previously a lot of the business was reliant on m- meeting overseas oem demand and now they pivot a bit more to serving the domestic market and thinking about yeah okay if i have like a hit product a lot more people get to know about my own domestic brand and then i can then go from there to offering maybe a complementary range to that hit product a version two of that hit product etc and build out the user base naturally that way
1: Can you set that relationship between discovery that we were talking about earlier versus making a plan and saying I want to buy a thing. So I'm super into mom jeans. Am I getting on to Pinduoduo with that search in mind or am I more getting on shopping for other stuff and it's so suggested to me that then I'm headed in that direction?
2: Yeah, it really depends. We emphasize more of like a browsing. We do have a search bar. So if you maybe through other channels or whatever uh, was already like you were already heavily influenced and you knew that You really wanted a specific thing. My friend bought a new pair of mom jeans from this particular store. And so you might come in and search for that keyword right away, brand plus jeans, right? And then hope to find that pair of mom jeans. But oftentimes, If somebody else just has a very vague idea that like, okay, I want to buy some new clothes. I lost some weight. I want to show it off and maybe the browsing. So a lot of it is like pictorial driven. So it is kind of like search, but it is still a bit more organic in a way that, okay, I know that I want to buy clothes, but I don't have a specific idea. I tap into the category and as I'm browsing... The cool thing is that each thumbnail, the graphics and the thumbnails, they're also personalized. Based on my past shopping experience, the platform might know that Sunny's really into dresses and stuff. Then different types of dresses may occupy more of those like subcategories, is it mini dress, whatever, formal dress, but then somebody else who might really more be into like basics, right? They might see under dress a more basic looking dress the images can be customized because that is the thing to trigger your interest to like then check it out further so say you then tap into like bottoms and then from bottoms you decided like okay I really want jeans and there's different kinds of jeans so then it would kind of depend on maybe say I've bought clothing with that friend who has bought mom jeans before then we might suggest that same pair of jeans or similar looking jeans based on the knowledge that somebody with similar tastes as you has bought this product so maybe you would be interested in it, and then we can see like if you convert on the mom jeans or, or not, right? And so maybe you do, and then that's another data point for us. Like ah, okay, you're somebody who has this sort of sense of style and this kind of product you like. And so maybe you know a few months later or whatever, when you come back and you start browsing again for like fashion items, then we might show things of a similar style.
1: Is it fair to say that that's what allows Pinduoduo to be such a deep experience, but perhaps with a fraction of the volume of brands, perhaps of other Chinese e-commerce retailers? Is that really describing what's going on there?
2: Yeah, so we get a question quite often, do we have a target number of brands or target number of merchants and do we feel this advantage versus other platforms who have a longer history and more merchants selling things on the platform so i think our answer is always that it's not so much about the quantity of listings that you have it is really about getting the right mix of listings in terms of that recommendation piece that's what a lot of companies are trying to do if you shop on T-Mall or taobao for instance there's also recommendation and i think everyone just has a different approach to how they formulate those recommendations but for our perspective because we start out day one with the team purchase with the whole idea of there are things that your friends are interested in that they could influence you to make a purchase in You're desires or your demands sometimes they can be influenced by those around you they're sometimes fungible like the apple versus banana example so these are things that actually feed into i guess how we approach that recommendation process so we might then take into account okay this is where you're similar with your friends and whatever and so this thing is even more relevant to you and then we can test it out whereas for other platforms that are a bit more single user focus or search focus they might have a different logic for recommending products So I think it's an evolving process. So I I would say when we look at what users want, sometimes... New things come into being, new trends happen. Then we realize like, oh gosh, we need more listings for overalls. Suddenly it's in. And so then we go and make sure that we have the right kind of overalls that people are looking for. So it's about having a system as well, I think, to flag where consumer demand is heading towards and where we need to show up, ensure that we have the right product and that we're showing it to them.
1: What is the most defensive aspect of the platform against competitors. When you think about the moat that Pinduoduo has been able to build and it's building.
2: The main thing is that we just focus on serving our users well. So it doesn't sound like a very exciting answer, but it is actually something that's hard to do well at scale and to have that humility that you haven't figured out everything about users. You have to keep adjusting the user experience. When you look at what some of the other e-commerce players or other people who've entered the market have tried to do, a lot of people have had ideas like, oh, we'll just be like duo, or oh, we'll also start a team purchase just and, and this and that. And I think it is really the case where it's easy to copy the form, but not really capture the spirit. So yes, you could also introduce mini games in your app, and say, Oh, look, I now have fun things. But do people associate that with your brand? Do people naturally want to come to your platform and play a game. I think those are things that are harder to replicate just off the shelf. And it's something that takes a more deliberate process of trying to build into the user experience and that brand association. So it's hard for us to say this is the moat, whatever it is, but I think it does come down to just that focus on the user, like of relentlessly just focusing on what it is that they want and also being very open to adapting. Our CEO, Chen Lei, has mentioned before that when he was architecting and designing the Pinduoduo app right at the beginning, he was already thinking about a future where online and offline all merge together. Then he figured everybody is going to be online through the mobile internet. So we don't need to design a PC version. Let's just go with a mobile first and a mobile only design. And so that's been the step that we've taken since day one. These days, yes, you see people who also have mobile versions, mobile apps. I think it's very different when you're from the get-go, just mobile focus, mobile first. And then you think about how would people be using the app, be interacting in the online world and the offline world, and then try to develop products that fit in quite nicely so i think the total grocery example is another one whereby you can seamlessly just toggle between Pinduoduo, the main app itself maybe you're browsing maybe you're playing a game and then you remember like oh hey i've got to place an order by 11 p.m to get the stuff tomorrow and then you just jump over to the pindle grocery side and then place the order and you're back browsing other things in the main app itself and then as you're sort of picking up the order the next day you can give feedback offline to the person who is at the pickup point for instance and say like oh i ordered this thing but it didn't quite turn out well and sometimes people prefer to give feedback offline so maybe maybe it works. I think it's just having those options. Because if you only have a very singular vision of like, oh, this is how people interact, or this is how people will use it, without thinking about different sort of user profiles, different user needs, then I think you would miss out on some of these nuances. It can actually make a user more loyal and a bigger fan of your platform.
1: Well, and you referenced earlier the very low take rate that Pinduoduo has within the ecosystem, which is less than 1%, whereas JD's might be you know over 20% or 5% for Alibaba. How does that factor into Pinduoduo's next chapter? How do you think about that in terms of the, maybe the growth objectives for the company?
2: Sure. I think for us, really, the idea is to ensure that we have a platform that is open that can have new merchants join in with great products if they have them to share with consumers. And so we often get asked the question of should you be increasing your take rates, et cetera, We choose to demonstrate our values and that's why 90% of our revenues are from advertising. So if merchants see good returns on investing on the platform, then they'll naturally want to spend more. And so this will also be a way to motivate us or keep us thinking about, okay, so what are the tools that they need? What more can we do to ensure that this is really a platform where users will keep coming, they'll spend more time, they'll buy more things from us. Right, And then I think as we look into future areas for development, one thing that we're very focused on is around agri and food tech. From our roots as an agriculture-focused platform, we definitely have been very aware that there's a lot of inefficiencies in the supply chain that we need to actually work out. And some of it can be solved with technology. So we've kind of done the first leg of it, where we're bringing some of the products that are sold offline through very convoluted supply chains online, right? And then streamlining the process. So now for a farmer who's selling a fresh product, they can actually command a bigger piece of the overall value chain and the consumer can still enjoy at a lower price than what they used to. So you're actually just redistributing some of the markups that would have gone to the midstream, where maybe it went to a wholesaler and it bumped along to another wholesaler before it finally went to the retailer. And some of that transit is unnecessary in the online world. So how do we then evolve on top of that? So we've done the first leg where we're like, okay, we can actually streamline it so that it goes more from point to point and the consumer gets fresher product, it gets at a better price, the farmer makes more money. But then what else can we do? Can we also then take some of that C2M thinking and then apply upstream? Can we also influence the farmers in terms of what they're growing? Can we work with the midstream in terms of, say, the cold chain logistics, right? Because we're processing so much order volume, we might be able to predict and say like, okay, there's probably going to be however many tons of whatever product that needs to come from this place, this place, on this date or in this week. So can you pre-stage the vehicles so that the transit time is even shorter so that it just the consumer in better time and you also save in terms of the time that you would have paid the driver to just be like idling or whatever and then upstream in terms of what the farmers are growing how they're growing it there are things that we can do to maybe bring technology closer to them whether it's through our total farms where we work with local governments or agronomic research institutes to come up with a work plan to bring in some technology to bring in more updated farming knowledge or maybe through initiatives like our smart agri competition which we organized for the first time last year where we actually had Young people with AI machine learnings or backgrounds going head to head versus traditional strawberry growing teams with decades of experience. So it's like man versus machine. At the end of the day, before the competition even ended, the traditional teams they saw right next to them that the AI team's greenhouse was able to produce almost three times as much strawberries, right, in terms of yield. And they're like, what? You know, it's bearing fruit one and a half weeks earlier than them. It's Producing more, it's not as sweet. So, granted, there's an adjustment on that. But when you net it all out in terms of ROI, it's a 76% higher ROI on average if you just do it through the AI team's way, which is entirely remote and taking in a lot of information about how the leaf mass is growing, when you adjust the water, when you adjust the airflow, how does that change the size of the berries, et cetera. So they've got models to maybe institutionalize things that the farmer kind of like knows from experience. So when we bring that together, then can you have better products that come out of it, right? So one of the teams from that has actually started out their own company and they are working with some of the farmers from the traditional teams to bring it to their wider farming community in their local area. Those are like specific examples of how we hope to be a catalyst for more collaboration and more digitization in the industry. Not everything can be done by us, So we hope to partner where we can with agronomists or with the local government, or maybe with other people in the agri-food business who have specific know-how and see, okay, how do we leverage the scale? How do we push it out and benefit more farmers, right? Because if we don't do something about improving farming productivity, improving transparency in the supply chain, the food system that we have in the next 10 20 years may not be that great and for consumers you definitely would also want to have that assurance you're buying things online that you're eating well you're eating safe if people can do that today with manufactured goods or even an iPhone, you've got a warranty, you've got visibility into roughly where it was produced and how it came. Then eventually some of that also has to, I think, transpire to the agricultural industry for that to really meet consumers' needs and at the same time help farmers improve their livelihood. So if they can produce things that are you know, more in demand, they can produce things that are better, they can fetch a higher price for their labor.
1: No, it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. The final question here, we've talked about Pendo past, the future, the kind of what's next and the chapters that come is how do we dig in more? So if we want to learn more about the spaces where PDD is investing, about the company itself, what can we read? What can we consume in terms of content or listen to?
2: Sure. So I would highly recommend that you check out our corporate blog site, uh, our content hub. It's called stories.pinduoduo-global.com. So the URL is a bit of a mouthful, but once you get there, just favorite it. We have a lot of stories that come out, not just about what Pinduoduo is doing, but also some interesting trends and developments that we see, whether it's in logistics or in agriculture or in e-commerce that's a good resource because it gives you a good idea of the types of topics that we're interested in, that we're focused in, you get updates on what we're doing as well. And you can also sign up for our newsletter through that website. And we have a e-commerce or more general newsletter that comes out on Tuesdays and a more agriculture-focused one that comes out on Thursdays every week. And then just a little plug for my own podcast. We also have an agri-related podcast. So it's called Agri Matters. Basically, we publish a new episode once a month, and we talk to all kinds of people in the agri-food industry, whether it's, you know, on food safety or alternative protein. It's our way of also trying to build out the ecosystem. So, you know, it's literally me learning as I'm doing the podcast and also just sharing the findings with other people.
1: Well, Shini, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation.
1: It's incredible to believe a business founded in 2015 has been able to scale as quickly as Duoduo has. It's fascinating to hear an example of a social network that took a differentiated approach to create that network effect flywheel to which so many companies aspire. The company will be fun to watch moving forward as they expand, and it'll be really interesting to see the transformative impacts that it has and its model has on pushing social e-commerce concepts forward in China and around the world. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of Penduador.
0: To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.